0: and welcome to the act of worship podcast this is dr jonathan michael jones and uh, i'm excited to be back at it after a long break i have not recorded a podcast since uh, april i believe it was and so that's uh, may june july august four months and uh, here we are september the 8th i am back at it and um Uh, You can be in prayer for me. I am praying about the direction of this podcast, uh, even to the point of whether or not it should continue. Um, I I will do it, um, probably at least through the end of this fall, but I'm praying about um, what to do beyond that. And so uh, be in prayer for me. Um, this, This is the kind of thing that really helps me. I don't do this just for... Um, for other people um, because it certainly helps me as I think about these issues that I discuss as I pontificate. It it really does help me. I'm forced to sort of dig in uh, to the scriptures and to um, scholarly material even and see what, what other people and what the Bible says about these issues. And so uh, these are things that, that help me as a Christian, as a human being, and so I, I enjoy doing it. I'm glad I do it, and so there are weeks that I will look and see, and I will have, I've had up to 21 people listen to this podcast before. Yes, I know, I'm, I'm making it big with 21 people, um, but then there have been weeks where I look and, oh wow, I had two people listen. <laughs> My hope is that uh, these things are Uh, beneficial and edifying to the church Uh, that's why this podcast is titled act of worship i believe life is worship um and and so i want these things to help us and so i look at theological issues i try to stay as focused on biblical text as possible obviously when i start discussing cultural issues i get away from that and that's okay um but really and truly um Apart from Scripture, I really have nothing to say. <laughs> we have been given everything we need for life and for godliness, and I believe it's all found in the text of Scripture. I had a discussion recently with somebody about that, um, and, uh, you know, there are people that believe that, well, some people need more than the Bible. No, we, we don't. We really don't need more than Scripture. And um, and the other part of that conversation that I was having, um, I reminded Um, this person that scripture is derived from Jesus. He is not derived from scripture. So when people talk about the word, there are different Greek words. Um, the Logos that is talking about in John one in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. That is Jesus. Uh, that is talking about Jesus, not scripture, but there are places where the word is talking about scripture, the text of the Bible. But that is derived from Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament, prophets from Genesis to Revelation, everything is derived from Jesus. He is not derived from Scripture. In other words, we get the idea sometimes that Jesus is holy, that he um, is God, that he is righteous, he is holy because he obeyed Scripture. No, 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 that's, that's who he is. He is righteous, he is holy, and all of Scripture is derived from him. Uh, Didn't mean to chase a rabbit there, but uh, my point is that uh, everything that I say, I want it to be edifying to the church, and so that includes this topic today, and I'm starting off on a big one here, Um, the the doctrine of grace, uh, the issue of Calvinism, it's a debated topic, perhaps not as much as it used to be. As I was growing up, uh, that was almost a cuss word. You just did not say you were Calvinist. Uh, and then later I became a Calvinist and um, and realized that I was not alone. There there are, are several people, not just outside of my own denomination, but within the Southern Baptist denomination that are Calvinists. There's been sort of a resurgence of Calvinism in recent years. And um, I, I don't, hate people or fault people if they are not Calvinist. I was raised not being a Calvinist, and so it's, it's not a big deal. It's a secondary issue. I think it is an important one, like, like many other secondary issues. But um, I'm going to talk today about uh, the five points of Calvinism in, in, in a different light. Uh, some people don't even know what the five points of Calvinism are. If you take the word TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, uh, it's an acronym, and there are five points to Calvinism, and that's total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And so what I want to do today is go through these five points. Listen, this, this is something that um, I'm only going to be discussing this for a few minutes here. Um, it took me six months to... To really grapple with this to the point where I said okay I believe this so this is surface level okay this is not something that you can um, you could say oh I'm going to go prove this right or wrong with a few verses that's what I tried to do I tried to prove it wrong and and obviously wound up believing it but um, uh, so th- this is surface level so I'm, I'm going to discuss the five points of Calvinism and discuss First of all, what they are not, and then what they are. So, I'm less dogmatic about my Calvinistic beliefs than I used to be, but I am still devoted to the doctrines of grace as I ever have been. And so, uh, perhaps the reason so many new Calvinists, I think, are maybe annoyingly devout to this doctrine is because—I used to be one of those, I know— Uh, Perhaps it's because it really is good news. It's not bad news. And so many people see it as bad news, but it's not. I used to be someone that saw, saw Calvinism as bad news until I understood it. And so it's a secondary issue. I'll say that again. In other words, it's not necessary for salvation, but it is a crucial one. I think for people to understand no matter on which side of the doctrine they stand and so my purpose here is to walk through the five points of calvinism and discuss and discuss each one regarding what it is not and what it is. So let's start with the first one. Total depravity. That's the T in tulip. And now although this is referred to as calvinism um And it takes the name after John Calvin. Calvin himself is not responsible for the formulation of TULIP. Uh, Rather, he was instrumental in the teaching and professing of these ideas. But it was later that these five points came about. So, what is total depravity? Let, Let me talk about what it is not first. Total depravity is not synonymous with a lack of the Holy Spirit's conviction. I was recently asked after one of the mass shootings, which we've had a lot this year, or it seems like it at least, uh, perhaps uh, social media and the news make it worse. Um, They're bad enough already. But uh, I was asked recently after one of these mass shootings, what makes people not commit mass murders? And so I answered the Holy Spirit. That that was my simple answer. And this person who asked the question then responded by pointing out the fact that many people, in fact, the majority, are not Christians, but they don't commit mass murders. So it couldn't possibly be the Holy Spirit. So what makes them not commit mass murders? My response, again, was the Holy Spirit. (laughs) What I mean by that is... Uh, Total depravity does not mean that God does not move among and even guide people, including those who are not Christians. Remember that God used and even commanded the steps of wayward people in Scripture. And so we're assured that the Holy Spirit is at work on this earth. Total depravity does not equate to a lack of God because he is everywhere. He is omnipresent. Someone once asked me, if God is omnipresent, how how is He in hell? I thought He wasn't in hell. I thought hell was separation from God. Wrong. God is still everywhere. The difference is that people in hell, and I do believe there is a little a literal hell, um, people in hell are in God's presence under His wrath, not under His mercy. That's the difference. So total depravity is is not. A lack of the Holy Spirit's conviction. It does not mean that people who are not Christians do not ever do good deeds or make good decisions, but even that is guided by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Even that. So, what is total depravity? It's exactly what it sounds like for humanity the complete and utter lostness and deadness of humanity. The doctrine of original sin teaches that Adam's race, in other words, humanity, is, if, is affected, infected with the stain of sin, and therefore is doomed to eternal punishment. So, one issue many have with Calvinism is what seems to be unfair that God would send people to hell. Okay? The problem is... That humanity is already going there. God does not send them there. Humanity is already going there. So people will ask the question, what about the good person who has never heard the gospel in the jungles of of the Amazon? And and they never heard the gospel and they die without Christ. Surely God wouldn't send a good person to hell. Here's the problem. There is no such thing as a good person. It does that person does not exist. Sure, if there was, yeah, that person would not go to hell. But that person does not exist. So scripture says that we are dead in our trespasses apart from Christ. In Ephesians 2 1, Ephesians 2 5, Colossians 2 13, we are dead. How can someone who is dead make any good decisions or do any good apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit? That is why I believe that even those who are not Christians, that perhaps live what might seem like a good life, they make good decisions, they do good things, they help the poor, all of that, even that is from the Holy Spirit, even though they are not Christians. I'm not saying they're, they're saved. That's not what I'm saying. So the issue with humanity is not that we have sinned, okay? Paul says in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But when you dig deeper into that issue, And read the entirety of scripture, particularly Paul's letters, you realize that the issue is not just that we have sinned, but it's that we have never done anything but sin. That is it. You know, people talk about, well, if you'd only committed one sin, you'd still be separated from God. That is true, but the issue is deeper. It's more fundamental. We are conceived in sin. We are dead in our trespasses. It doesn't say we are drowning in our trespasses. We are dead you know people think sin they get the idea of of someone drowning in an ocean and then Jesus ha- throws a life preserver to them for them to grab a hold of the problem is that we are not drowning we are down at the bottom of the ocean water in our lungs dead in sin total depravity not partial depravity wicked evil radically depraved uh, that that sounds uh, like well it's it's contrary to what people believe in our contemporary society and even in the church there are people who cannot grasp that 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 humanity is 100% completely evil equal and, and on the same plane with with the worst of the worst. the vilest offender and the best person are equal in depravity. So human choice is always going to be sin without Christ's divine intervention. Uh, there, there's a, a difference in free will and choice. And I've had this discussion with many people before. And a lot of people see those as the same thing. That the, the reason I prefer choice as opposed to free will is, is a twofold reason. And first of all, The word or the term free will and even the concept is not in the Bible anywhere, but I will gladly use the word choice. And there are people that say that's the same thing. No, it is not. Absolutely not. Certainly we choose. The problem is that our choice apart from Christ in our deadness, in our wicked and total depravity is always going to be sin. We will always choose sin. No matter what, had it not been for Christ first loving us, we would utterly and eternally reject him. And so our choice will always be sin without Christ's divine intervention. So total depravity is the complete and utter evil of every single person who has ever lived and who will ever live. No one is worse than another. We are all equally depraved. Okay, so that's the (laughs) T. Welcome to this podcast. Here is the U. Unconditional election. Unconditional election. What it is not. This is pretty simple. A common misconception is that God elects some for for heaven and some for hell. That's, you know, people that... And and believe it or not, there are some Calvinists, some very, I I would say, uh, scholarly Calvinists who believe this. Um, A double predestination that, that God elects some for heaven and some for hell. Besides the fact that heaven is not at all the point of salvation, okay, Romans eight twenty nine says that conformity to Christ is the purpose of salvation. Besides that, God does not elect some for heaven and some for hell. Rather, he sovereignly chooses some who are already doomed for eternity, not based on what they have done or what they have not done, but according to his pleasure, his will, what he wants to do. So that's what unconditional election is not, is not that he elects some for heaven and some for hell. What it is, unconditional election focuses more not on election, but rather on the fact that it is unconditional. In other words, it is not based on anything someone has or has not done. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone which may only occur at God's sovereign awakening. I talked about us being dead. The only way that we are able to receive Christ is by him sovereignly awakening us. If someone believes that salvation is given because of a a decision made, perhaps you've heard that. I am saved because I made a decision for Christ, or I accepted Christ. If someone believes that, effectively, a belief of works is at play. It's, you know, it it is not, is it not a work to ask Jesus into your heart? Sure. That's a work. You are saying I am saved because I did something that B that a happened because I did B that's a work. And certainly I believe many people are saved through salvation prayers. And so this is not to dismiss a, a mode of receiving, but rather to point out that christ and his will is the ultimate goal in election no one knows who is elect and no one knows who's not elect so we need to obey christ and his call to to preach the gospel to all people for me knowing that god's election is unconditional takes a great deal of pressure away i'm not responsible for my own salvation except that Man's responsibility and God's sovereignty are compatible. And that's something that's very difficult to explain because yes, we choose to sin. Yes, we choose Christ or we reject him. Yet that awakening for God's people may only happen by God sovereignly awakening the hearts of his people. And so I'm not responsible for anyone's salvation. I am responsible to obey and to preach, and the Holy Spirit does the rest. So that's unconditional election. Again, this is surface level. We could get so much deeper into this uh, topic. The next one is limited atonement. So what it is not, limited atonement is perhaps one of the five points of Calvinism uh, which upsets and and confuses people the most. And so uh, let me clear up one misconception about limited atonement. Limited atonement does not mean that God's atonement is not enough for all people or that God cannot save all people because he certainly can. So I don't know a single Calvinist who believes otherwise on this. That's not the issue here. Limited atonement also does not mean that some people are without hope. God desires that all come to repentance and that no one would perish, 2 Peter 3, 9. So what is limited atonement? The way I'm going to explain it here, you're going to hear it and think, man, that's pretty logical. Um, I once heard John MacArthur say that it's the easiest of the five points to believe. (laughs) Some people may say, well, how is that easy to believe? God's atonement is not it is not limited in scope but certainly is limited in application in other words only the elect receive atonement the reason limited atonement should be the, one of the easiest points uh, is is because only those who receive Christ will receive atonement that's logical only christians are atoned And so it it doesn't matter whether someone is a Calvinist or not, a Baptist, a Methodist, a Catholic, anything else, but only whether they have a lordship relationship with Jesus Christ. God's atonement is only limited to such people, okay? That doesn't mean that God can't save others or that he does not want to save others. But the only people who will be saved are those who are Christians, period, end of story. That's limited atonement. Dr. Robert Weber once said that everyone believes in limited atonement. So the question is not limited atonement, but who does the limiting? A Calvinist would believe that God does the limiting. No matter the view, limited atonement sees God's forgiveness being applied only to the church and to no one else. Although forgiveness and atonement is offered to all, but only those who who have a lordship relationship with Jesus Christ will be atoned. So the fourth point is irresistible grace. What it is not. What irresistible grace is not might be the most blatantly obvious of the five points as to regarding what it is not. Irresistible grace is not a view which excludes human rejection. In fact, human uh, hu- human rejection is, by nature part of our, what we do as humans humanity utterly rejects god and uh, scripture is clear that we would continue to reject god had it not been that he first loved us romans five ten says that we are enemies of god and so we would perpetually reject christ without his sovereign awakening so what is irresistible grace Irresistible grace is the biblical concept that no one may ultimately resist the will of God as much as we think we may. Romans 9, 19, Paul talks about this. Even Pharaoh's disobedience was was guided, it was planned, and it was executed by God to reveal his glory. Read Exodus 14. Exodus 14, 4 tells us this. So people either receive or they reject Christ. God has a purpose in both. And the ultimate purpose is so that his glory may be revealed. So the fifth point of Calvinism is perseverance of the saints. What it is not. Perseverance of the saints is not a license to sin for those who are elect. In fact, uh, there are those who will say that if you believe in Calvinism, um, it quenches the fire to witness. That... uh, well, people are elect anyway, so what's the point? Why not witness? I don't know a single Calvinist who sees it that way. None. At all. In fact, most of the Calvinists I know have a, a an all-consuming passion for the glory of God to the point where missions and evangelism takes a priority in their lives and in their churches. So... It's not a license to sin for the elect either. In fact, those who belong to God should find satisfaction in Christ to the point where they become more like him. In other words, spiritual formation involves a decreasing of desires of the flesh. Perseverance of the saints is also not a guarantee that life will be nothing but happiness without any troubles. Jesus assures us of the opposite in John sixteen thirty three. So what is Perseverance of the Saints? Perseverance of the Saints teaches that while troubles in this world are guaranteed, God's sovereign plans and purposes will still be accomplished, and nothing will separate God's people from his love, Romans 8, 38-39. And additionally, that all things, including death itself, work together for the good of God's people, Romans 8, 28. I once heard uh, someone uh, just put it in a different perspective for me. Um, reading from Paul's letter in Philippians 3.14 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And this this pastor said, I can do all things through Christ, even starve. Uh, that just put it in a completely different perspective for me. Yes, I can do all things through Christ and there are some things that he calls people to on this earth which may result in drastic consequences, death even. But it doesn't matter because the glory of God is always the issue and this is not our home. So the church is ultimately preserved. The church perseveres and we possess a rich inheritance in Christ so what is the purpose of these five points of Calvinism? Why, why did, you know, why did reformed churches in the, in the 15th and 16th, 17th centuries, why did they come up with the these five points? What was the pur- purpose? Was it to argue with people or or to um, make it seem like, well, we're better than you? Not at all. The purpose is God's glory. And so when, when I was wrestling with Calvinism in college, I was angered because I, I couldn't find anything satisfactory to argue against it. I tried, believe me, for six months. I had commentaries and scripture. I just set out and studied and studied and wrote and wrote, and I was going to prove this wrong, and it didn't happen. And a friend of mine graciously met with me and had heated discussions with me. Oh, the heat was probably on my part, more than (laughs) this person's. Um, Had heated discussions with me while I set out to prove Calvinism's false heretical teaching (laughs) but in the process i came to believe that against which i was fighting calvinism i had no argument and what a relief it was to finally realize and understand that nothing is in my control no matter how much i think it is i remember sarcastically asking my friend if we're just robots at god's disposal and this is a question that many calvinists have been asked you know, that's the logical thing. Well, are you saying we're just robots? And the response was, uh, I'll never forget it. The response was this. No, not robots, but it's actually worse. And it was followed by a reading of the scripture. And when I said, are we nothing but robots? This person said, no, it's it's worse than that. And then read this scripture from Romans 9, 20 through 23. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? That, that passage, uh, it has been explained by people throughout the centuries without a satisfactory response. And I looked and believed, I believe I found, I I would have found it if it existed that that this can't be true, that, that there's some way to explain this away. But the one that stuck out to me was when this person read and said, What if God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And this doesn't mean that he doesn't love people. But he has a purpose in election, and that is his glory. And his glory far exceeds any other purpose. In other words, yes, God wants the best for his people, but not at the, not at the expense of his glory. So my solution then was to accept it as truth and to trust God. And this, uh, this is not a way out of serving God But this is a message of good news for those people who are his, because nothing can take us from his hand. And so the purpose in any doctrine, primary or secondary, should be the glory of God. So we need to be diligent servants to our master and people who preach the exceedingly good news of Jesus Christ, the message of hope for a hopeless world. This is good news. So what do you do with someone who's not a Christian? What if they're not elect? Well, we don't know. Pray for them. With all diligence, preach the gospel to them. And let God do his work in their lives. I hope this has been helpful. I hope this has been beneficial. Looking at the five points of Calvinism, what they are, what they are not. As I mentioned, this is surface level. There is so much more, and we could get a lot deeper in this. But that is all we're going to do today. So... I uh, hope you're back with me next week on the Active Worship Podcast. Uh, thank you for listening. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones.